1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19 will be our text today. Uh, last week we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Um, I, I hope you uh, were able to hear that passage, uh, that, that sermon last week, because in that passage we saw the necessity for the life of, Christian, the, of the Christian to be marked by contentment and to be those who are free from the desire to be rich. And, and what we're going to talk about today is based on the foundation of what we talked about uh, last week. So uh, if you weren't able to be there, maybe listen to it at another point in time, uh, you'll still be able to get stuff out of this. Um, I'm going to recap a little bit of what we talked about last week here. If you remember, we learned about, uh, we, we learned that the secret of biblical contentment is really uh, what we described as a change in perspective. The fact that, that once you really understand the gospel and what it is that Christ has done for you on the cross, once you really understand what you have been saved from and saved for, godliness with contentment will be a natural and expected response. In fact, it doesn't make sense in this light, to not be content. Once you really understand eternity, the fact that, that this life is temporal and that eternal life awaits, that our physical lives aren't even worth comparing to, to a vapor when we are thinking in terms of eternity, and that nothing that we accumulate on this earth can come with us when we die, and it makes sense why we should be content here. When you think about it in those terms, it would be like being anxious and desirous and only thinking about that bowl of mints during that brief interval of time when you're waiting to be seated at an all-you-can-eat buffet. That's what it's like for a Christian to not be content in this life. We also have have to have a perspective shift when it comes to the reason why we're here. The reason why God gives us everything that He gives us is so that we can do the good works that God has prepared for us to do. From Ephesians 2.10 When you understand that the reason that you are here, the main reason that God continues to provide food, shelter, and air is so that we can continue to do the work of evangelism and discipleship until such a time as He ceases providing those things for us and brings us into that eternity where we can take nothing with us. The fact that He is still providing for us then means that we still have work to do for His kingdom while we are here. So when you're living in light of this reality, once again, it just makes logical sense when you understand that a, that a sovereign God will give you all that you need to do the work that He has for you while you are here, you won't be able to help but be content. In light of these truths, it makes sense that Paul gives, so it makes sense that Paul gives us such a serious warning that he gave us in verses 9 and 10 about the dangerous desire for riches. If we only have this one brief physical life to fulfill the work of the church, then for us to fall into the worldly trap of desiring riches causes us to forget who we really are and why we're here. 
And there is a good, then there is good reason for us to be concerned about it because we are told here that in, in verse 10 that it is this desire that plunges people into ruin and destruction and leads to all kinds of evils and sorrows. In fact, when we look into that greater context of chapter 6, Paul is saying that, that actually one of the primary distinctions between true Christians and false Christians or false teachers that, that Paul is warning of, the ones that he's been warning of in, in the beginning of chapter 6, one of the main distinctions has to do with their ability to be content, the Christian's ability to be content and to flee from the desire for riches. Now, these truths need to be in our head and our heart As we go into today's text, we are those who have been changed. The things that we live for, the desires of our hearts, should in no way mirror the heart desires of those who love the world, those who have no desire to pursue holiness. We have been given everything of any lasting value in Christ. And all that we have in Him can never be lost. The only things that we can lose are things that have no real value in the first place. So we need to remember the truth that we exist on this planet as servants and stewards of God. This is what Paul wants us to be thinking about as we come into the text for this morning. He takes a brief excursus here in verses 11 through 16 to encourage Timothy personally to be diligent in making sure that he is nothing like these false teachers. So immediately after the warning we got in verse 10, Paul begins telling Timothy and encouraging Timothy, As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight. You see that in verse 12, he reminds him about the real battle. Like we talked about, the real battle that he is in. Fight the good fight of faith. He reminds him to take hold of eternal life. And he again points out the the, the perspective that we were talking about last week. Take hold of eternal life. Let that be your thinking in regard to material possessions. He reminds him of the good confession that he has made. That's in, that, that's in coordination with the, with the faith that, we're t- that we talk about in verse 10 that those who desire riches have walked away from. In verse 13, he reminds Timothy of the connection between his confession and that of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 15 through 16 with this beautiful doxology. About Jesus Christ, he says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So, so, so we can see here exactly what Paul is doing in this doxology. He is, he is elevating the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is reminding Timothy of just who Jesus is and demonstrating beyond a shadow of a doubt just what it is that is of actual infinite value. What it is, or, or I should say who it is 
that is of infinite value, who it is that rightly belongs at the center of the desire of our hearts. He's showing once again that in light of who Jesus Christ really is, it is utter foolishness to, be, to, to not be content in Him and instead to allow your heart to seek after earthly riches. And then he moves into this text that we'll be looking at today, instructing Timothy on what he should say to the rich. And with what we just talked about last week and informing our thinking, today what we want to do is discover just what it is that God wants those who are rich in this present age to do. In light of all this truth about who Jesus Christ is, the, the foolishness of not being content in Him and the foolishness of chasing after material goods, Paul says here that in light of these truths, here's what you say to the rich. Verses 17 through 19, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You can see in your bulletins that I've divided this section into four points that we're going to look at today. Just one word points. Identity, hope, response, and treasure. The first point, identity. Under that point, I don't, I don't mean the, the concept of finding our identity in Christ and not in riches, although that is good and true and you should do that. What I want to talk about here is identifying the rich. Who are the rich that Paul is talking about? Who are, who are Paul's commands here for? Because when most of us hear people talking about the rich, we don't think of ourselves. We think of movie stars or pro athletes or people who are making millions. I saw just yesterday that uh, Robert Downey Jr. got paid $75 million for this last movie. At $75 million. So, so we think of them, or at the very least, we, we think of at least someone making more than us, people who have a, a nicer car or a house than us. Uh, those are rich. We are very reluctant to ever put ourselves in the category of the rich. In fact, you may have just heard my proposition a moment ago about discovering what God wants rich Christians to do and thought to yourself, well, hopefully there's still something in here for me to learn. Maybe even worse, maybe you thought of someone else in the church and you're like, I hope they're listening then. <laughs> or or maybe, maybe, you, maybe you thought this is, uh, this is one of those metaphorical things that, yeah, we're all really rich in Christ. So yeah, that, this apply, I see where he's going with this. It's true that we are really rich in Christ. We talked about that last week. But we, we can see from the context here that Paul is talking about those who have worldly wealth. So he says right in the first phrase, for the rich in this present age. That, 
And so it is kind of cool to see that, it, that Paul is acknowledging the fact he's recognizing that all who are believers have eternal riches. The rich in this present age is again a reminder of our temporal existence. That there is no uh, dependent correlation between the riches that can be accumulated in this present age and the riches that await all whom God has made co-heirs with Christ. No, notice that these are members of the church that Timothy is being instructed to teach these things to, these rich. Now, this is all a letter to Timothy about how he is to instruct those in the church in Ephesus. So these are church members who possess earthly riches. They're not false teachers who he's supposed to rebuke and reprove, but church members who he's supposed to instruct. So we can infer just from this then and from a lot in the Bible that it is not a sin in and of itself to be rich. So if that is part of your thinking, you need to get it out of your head that it's sinful to be rich and that what purifying the church looks like is getting rid of all the rich people. We do not want that. There, there have been quite a few rich, godly people in the Bible. You think of in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Job, Joseph, second over all of Egypt, King David. And then in, in the New Testament, there's people like Joseph of Arimathea. Zacchaeus seems to be pretty well off. Women like Lydia or Dorcas. They have riches, and their riches are used in the New Testament for the good of the church, for the ministry of Paul. God, God used these people and their faithfulness with their riches in a lot of ways. In fact, the faithful wealthy have, have always been used by God for many good things. God has used the faithfulness of actually some, very, uh, some fairly wealthy people to help this church, our church on more than one occasion. Righteousness does not mean taking a vow of poverty so that you can be poor. Remember we talked, we talked last week about how it is not money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It is the love of money. You can, you can fall into this sin, the love of money, whether you're rich or poor. It's not a sin to be rich, but it is a sin not to be a good steward of your possessions. So it, it doesn't mean we liquidate all our assets, but it does mean that you use all of the principles that we've talked about last week, and we're going to talk about this week, and the instructions we're going to look at to evaluate your purchases and the way you use money. Because again, in the end, it is God who determines who is rich and who is poor. We heard that in the, in the prayer of Hannah that, that uh, Gary read this morning. Therefore, if we see it as a gift from God, then we are to treat it with the same amount of responsibility that we treat all gifts that we receive from God and be good stewards of that gift and use it to glorify God. So, it is in fact then good news for us that being rich in and of itself is not a sin because there is every reason to think that Paul is talking to all of us here in this passage. I know that none of us, like I said earlier, like to think that we are rich. We all like to make jokes about how poor we are and what we can't afford that someone else can afford. And we can do that because we can always imagine people who we think are leading the dream life compared to us, people who have way more than we do. And as long as we can see those people, 
we feel like we can just keep joking about how little money we have. We need to stop thinking along those lines as we come to this text. We need to be convinced that we are the exact type of people whom Paul is talking to. You need to believe that the poor people that Paul has in mind in this text, as he distinguishes out those who are rich in this present age, the poor people here would look at your life and believe that you are living the dream life that they could never imagine. We've got to get it out of our head, that that kind of self-pity thinking that almost everyone across the wage scale thinks to themselves that since they can't do something or buy something that some other person can, then they aren't actually rich. We, We even try and make it sound godly sometimes by saying things like, well, with God's help, I'm getting by. I'm just... You know, I'm scraping by. And I'm not saying that Paul is saying that everyone who reads this letter is rich and needs to apply this. He's, he's got a clear group in mind. He clearly makes a distinction. He clearly does believe that there are some rich and some, and some poor, but I do not think that any of us in here qualify as the poor. Paul can make a distinction between the rich and the poor in the church in Ephesus because both groups actually exist in that church. In our church and in most churches in America, what we see is actually different level of richness. Different levels of richness. Some have much more than others, but no one would qualify as poor to the same degree that Paul is talking about here. Look up in in uh, chapter 5, in verses 3 through 5. Look at what Paul says about the widows there. He says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So he talks here about true widows, meaning there are some widows who have relatives who can take care of them, and there are some who have no hope of any kind of outside help. When when their husband died, all of their hope of provision died with them. So there's those people in this church. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, look, look another group of people. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. We see there the existence in this church of bond servants, or it's actually slaves. There are slaves who are members of this church. This means that they own, these are people, members of this church who own nothing because they are owned by someone else. They they cannot give anything financially because they don't have anything. They, They work for their master and their master provides for them if it's a good master, and they but they don't make any decisions about money because they have no contact with it. So in the church at Ephesus here, we find a congregation of, made up of those who are rich and of those who are desperate and true widows and of slaves, those who are truly poor. So this, once again, for us is a perspective issue. We don't, we don't think that we are rich because we are comparing ourselves to the wrong people. 
To, to be rich in the biblical context simply means that you have some sort of discretionary income. And before you say, aha, I don't have discretionary income. We live paycheck to paycheck by the time I pay the bills, stock the fridge, clothe the kids. We've got nothing left. But even, even if that's true, even if that's true and, and that's all you spend it on, we are so blessed. The, the fact that we get to choose what to eat and not whether to eat. The fact that you get to choose to some degree at least where you live and what you drive and what clothes you have or how many clothes your family will have demonstrates that we are the exact type of people that Paul is talking about here. And once again, I want to make sure that this isn't being taken as me telling you that there is a, a right or wrong answer to those questions for your particular situation. Uh, that's why biblical wisdom is so important. All of us have to make decisions about those things in light of the truths that we learned last week and this week. I just want us to see, this is the point, I just want us to see and hear the rest of this text with the understanding that it is about you and not someone else. And I, know, I preface this next thing I'm about to say with the, the fact that I know there's a lot of different things to take into account when it comes to the cost of living in America. But uh, according to the, to the Credit Suisse Global Wealth Report in, in February, if you make $32,400 annually, you are in the top 1% of the most wealthy people in the world. Right? And to get into that 2% thing that everyone's talking about, it's 25000 Well, all of this to say that when you think about how much the Bible talks about money and riches and the dangers facing the rich of this world, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, and all of the various commands and responsibilities that are, that are explicitly given to the wealthy, you need to step back and own those. Those need to be your warnings. Those are about you. We will be held accountable for our faithfulness to passages like this one because it is about us. So, point number one was that the identity of the rich. And in case you didn't get that, that's you. And that's me, that's all of us. Point number two is uh, under the word hope. Paul here tells the rich in this present age, again, which is us, about the importance of placing their hope in God as opposed to the uncertainty of riches. Before we get into that too much, though, I want us to notice something here. Paul tells Timothy to charge them with this. So some, some translations say instruct, but, but no matter what, the sense of the word that is being translated is that of he's passing on a command. Timothy, pass on this command or, or give, give this command. Its, its origin is not in you, but it's a command you must pass down. Paul is telling Timothy that he must command the rich with the authority that comes from God that this is how they are to act. So there, I know that there, even right now, there's this certain discomfort that we feel when pastors start talking about money. And that discomfort that you feel is, is probably linked to the issues that we're addressing today. 
But you must understand that it is a mandate from God that the pastors speak about this. Maybe because some of the issues with timidity that, that we know Timothy struggled with in the past, Paul feels obligated to make sure that Timothy knows this is not a thing you can back down from addressing no matter how uncomfortable everyone is and doesn't want to hear about it. And it makes sense then, doesn't it, in light of how serious he has already indicated that this money issue can be. I mean, it can be the very thing that causes those who have appeared faithful for their entire lives to wander away from the faith forever. It's that serious. So, so we have to get over our fear of having this topic addressed. Pastors are under a biblical mandate to address it and to command the rich in these areas. And one of the reasons that it's hard to address many on this subject is because of what he indicates here in verse 17. Riches tend to make us haughty or conceited or arrogant, depending on your translation. Verse 17, he says, again, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul tells Timothy here to charge the rich not to become haughty, not, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Becoming conceited is, is already a sign that your hope is in the wrong place. These, these two things are closely connected because hope and riches manifest itself in pride. Wealth has a tendency of causing us to look down on others. And actually, in both directions. Those who are, have more than us and who have less than us. It causes you to look at those who are struggling, and our natural tendency is to think, well, that person must be kind of lazy. Maybe they're unwise. Or, or cause us to think about if, if they wanted to do better, they could. And, and whether or not there is truth to that in that particular person, certainly, absolutely, the Bible makes clear that there are material repercussions when it comes to how hard people are willing to work. But the fact that this, that this is automatically where our mind goes the quickest demonstrates conceit and, and a forgetfulness of who has sovereignly blessed you with whatever it is you have. And in our pride, we also look the other way at those who are doing better than us. And we think about all the things that they, all the things that that person must not be sacrificing as much, you know, for them to be doing that much better. You know, I, I, we could do a little better too. Or our family could if we were willing to be, you know, less involved with the church or with our kids. We could do it too. Be, being anywhere, being anywhere on that sliding scale of being rich. That, that, that sliding scale that everyone with any discretionary income is on will tempt you to make conceited judgments in both directions. It, it's interesting that our default scale is always thinking that we are the ones living kind of the optimal Christian life based on the riches we have. Those, those who have less discretionary income than us, are, are they're the ones who are kind of making bad choices, and those who have more are the ones who aren't willing to sacrifice enough. That type of pride is a sign that you have already fallen into this exact type of thing that Paul is warning the rich about right here. It's a sign that you have placed your hope in the uncertainty of riches. Because what is funny is that 
as your income increases or decreases, so does your standard for what a righteous Christian life looks like. Now it's these people who, have, who, who you have passed who now suddenly seem like maybe they've begun to succumb to the wiles of the enemy and are being more lazy. And, and these other people who are in, in the same economic bracket as you are now are finally starting to seem like, hey, maybe they're growing in godliness a little. They're starting to mature. But nothing has changed. We, we're merely demonstrating our consistent wrong understanding of wealth that our hope is not where it should be. Our hope is to be in God, not in the uncertainty of riches. A haughty or arrogant attitude towards others is a sure sign that your hope is in the uncertainty of riches rather than in God who richly provides us with everything. You're You are not looking to God in those instances. You're looking at yourself. Looking down on other people is a sure sign that you're no longer looking at God. It is God who provides us with everything, not ourselves. It is ultimately God who provides our neighbor with what they have also. Again, when there is visible, sinful reasons that are keeping someone from being able to make more money or that they're keeping them or causing them to chase after too much money, then you address that sin with them. But otherwise, you recognize the sovereign purpose in God and the fact that you live in a place and a time where the skills that God has gifted you with have a greater or lesser monetary reward than your neighbor. God gives to all. We, we can't start thinking, we can't start thinking along the lines of, I earned this. So money is uncertain, but God is certain. Someone with some great executive job could find their job and and all of their degrees just completely obsolete with some crazy political or maybe some political or economic event transpires and now they find all those things useless. And that same event could suddenly bring those who have worked hard with their hands their entire lives and maybe went to trade school, could find them in in higher demanding positions. It's God who controls this. And notice that Paul isn't merely calling us to have hope in God in in some general sense. But he is telling us to have hope in God, the God who is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's that, that reminder that all, again, that all we have is from God. There is not a thing that you have that has not been given to you by God. Paul wants us, wants us who have been given much to have the same hope in God as those who have less. That's, that's why the warnings are so severe. That's why having riches is such a dangerous thing because it's so easy It's so easy to put our trust in them without even knowing it. There are very few of us, very few of us in here who who have maybe even ever prayed something along the lines with any seriousness of, Lord, please don't let me starve tomorrow. When we are praying for material things in our lives, it's rarely from that level of desperation that, that, 
that some around the world play, uh, pray with. That, that, that level of desperation that understands that it is God who is in control. This is the difficult task of the rich. This is our difficult task to be able to put everything that we own, everything that we have earned, take it and put it in the category of that which has been graciously given to me. If you look back again, look at 5.5 again, that verse we just read. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Night and day because she is desperate for God to provide. We, we who have been given so much are to exercise the same desperate hope in God that this widow with nothing has. Oh, how easy it is for us to forego those prayers and to just trust in our riches. It's so easy to think that they are and that they're there and they've been met because of our hard work and our wise decisions. Being among the rich means we have to constantly battle with the fact that we struggle. We, will, we are going to struggle to find the same hope in God that our brothers and sisters around the world demonstrate in their prayers. That is an extra obstacle that we have to deal with. We must constantly be aware of this. We must constantly have that. You need to see that for most of us, for most of us, ungratefulness and hoping in the uncertainty of money is a besetting sin. It's a besetting sin. It's, 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 it's a constantly present one. We need to live our lives with that knowledge should be constantly battling against this. And so when you have this understanding and when you're thinking this way, then you can now begin to see why Paul talks about giving us everything for us to enjoy. There is probably, in, in this word, there's probably a sense where he is using it to kind of poke, uh, to poke at the false teachers and what they think enjoyment is. And what they see is directly related as uh, the quest for wealth. But it is only when you have this true dependence on God that you are able to enjoy everything that's been given to you. He is a good Father who loves giving gifts and loves seeing us enjoying them. But they are only truly enjoyed when they are recognized as gifts. True enjoyment has nothing to do with fulfilling our selfish desires. It only happens when we are completely content in Christ and see everything that we have as a gift from Him and not as our own personal possession. Fighting against hoping in riches while placing our hope in God, whom we rightly understand as the one who provides us with everything to enjoy, is necessary for us then to respond rightly to these truths that we have been talking about. How do we respond to them? And that's where we get to the next point in our outline, which is response. 
Response. How do we respond to these truths? Once, once you really see God for who He is, the giver of everything, and you remember the truths that we have already been given anything of eternal value in the gospel, and you remember that this life is only temporary, that you can't take anything that you acquire here with you, and that you are merely a steward of all that God has put at your disposal, it will cause you to, then to respond rightly by obeying these directives that Paul gives in verse 18. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And I say responses here because I, I want us to think of it as natural response, but these responses, but, but these are commands that Paul gives here that we should respond to. These are actually imperatives. So the first instruction that Paul gives for us here is that we are to do good. We are to do good. The only other place where a form of this word that's translated as good here is used in the whole New Testament is in Acts 14, 17, where we're told about the goodness of God in giving rain from the heavens and fruitful seasons. It's, it's used in this passage Uh, this passage in Acts, to demonstrate the the constant goodness of God in His giving. So I'm I'm not saying from this that that we should just kind of walk around raining money on everyone we see, but it's that we should have a good and giving disposition. We should not see anything, anything in us that reveals a heart of stinginess. We should concern ourselves with doing that which is good, what, what, what is noble, what's excellent. Not anything that is selfish. The second instruction is that we are to be rich in good works. To be rich in good works. This comes straight, uh, it's it's coming straight out of that last one, but it gives it even, it gives us even more, it it, it even strengthens that more and adds more responsibility. Those who are rich in this present age are to trade those riches for riches in good works. God who has supplied us with all we have, the one who has made us rich in this present age, has done it so that we can become rich with good works. That's the reason. This is the joy, the blessing that's being given in in our earthly riches, is that we have so many more opportunities with those riches to do truly good works. To be rich, to be rich means to be abounding in something, to be overflowing with something. Paul is pointing to the fact that our earthly riches give us the opportunity to do even more for the kingdom of God than we could have done without them. It is a a privilege and a responsibility. Because, Because we have riches, we can accomplish good works for the kingdom of God The people without these resources cannot. The rich believer should be able to take those riches which he has been given by God and leverage them into riches in good works. We have been entrusted with more, so it should be expected that we would produce more. We need to see our riches as an opportunity to, to do so many more things for Christ and His church than we, than we could ever do without them. 
This is why, again, this is why it's not a sin to be rich. Because those with riches are able to, to be such an absolute blessing for the church. Money is a, is a resource that God uses in his church to accomplish the work of his kingdom. The more wealth that God has blessed you with, the more opportunity you have to do good works that, that others can't do. This is also why, again, why taking that vow of poverty and refusing pay raises is, is not the way to go. Now, with this mindset, what we do is we analyze every opportunity through faithfulness to Christ. What, what is it that allows us to produce the greatest riches and good works? Sometimes that might be turning down a promotion that will take you away from the good works that you can do in your church or, or your responsibilities with your family. But sometimes it might mean taking that promotion because it increases your opportunity to do good works through riches. Next, we're told to be generous. We're told to be generous. This means, this means to be liberal or bountiful in sharing. And it, it really points to, again, it really points to a heart attitude. A generous heart. One who, one who loves giving. One, one who's looking forward to opportunities to do it. Not, not feeling an obligation to give. Not seeing giving as a box you have to check off every week or every month. It's someone who, who hears a financial need come up and they get kind of excited in their heart that they can do something about it. There should just be this joyful desire to help when we hear of a need and excitement because we know that, that that's why we're here. That's why God has the rich here, to be generous. It's, we're here. That, that's my purpose. There's another opportunity for me to cash in earth, earthly riches for heavenly ones. If God gave you, think about this, if God gave you the intellect and the skill to be a brilliant doctor and you're on a plane and the pilot calls out over the intercom that there's a medical emergency, there's someone who's dying, is there anyone here who can help? If you're a doctor who's been gifted to be a doctor, you would be, you'd be thinking like, that's why I'm here. God has given me this, these abilities to help people, and here is a person who needs the exact kind of help that I have been gifted to help with. It's the same way for us as the rich. We hear of a need, especially within the church, and, and we're like, yes, that's why I'm here. That is why I'm here. That's why God has blessed me in the ways that he has blessed me. The idea expressed here as being, as being liberal or bountiful lends to the notion that being generous means we are, we are actually trying to go above and beyond the giving. It's, it's reflected in the way that the Israelites gave to building both the tabernacle and the temple. Actually, turn, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 35. Look at Exodus 35. This is where the people are preparing to build the tabernacle. The Israelites, they, they, understand, they understand that they are a privileged people for God to have chosen them. They are a privileged people, and they have that understanding 
of their, of their privilege as they hear these directions from Moses. Look in verses 4 through 9. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, uh, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the, for the ephod and for the breast piece. So, so that, that's the general command to them. But, but now, so that's the command, but now listen to how the people who understand the privilege of being able uh, to, to be the people of, of God, living with God, listen to how they respond. Look at, look at now, flip over to chapter 36, verses 3 through 7. It says, And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material that they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. When has that been a problem? <laughs> That's what it means to be generous. And, and think of this, if this is how they were when it came to building the tabernacle, remember, they're honored to have God dwelling with them in a tent and it's, it's the type of dwelling with them where they are still separated from the Holy of Holies by a curtain. If that's how compelled they are to be generous, how much more those who experience the presence of, presence of God with the curtain torn away, those whose bodies are the temple. So, of course, that means we're going to be willing to sacrifice some of our own pleasures to help with the needs of others and to give to the work of the church. Of, of course we will. It, do, we not, do we not take far more joy in that anyway? Next, we're told to be ready to share. To be ready to share. We see again with the word ready, there's this idea of, of eagerness to give again. The eagerness to give. But this, this, word for, this word for share is an interesting one. Koinonikos, koinonikos, which sounds like koinonia. Koinonia, and if you're familiar with that Greek word, it's a regular word we hear a lot. The word translated, it's, it means fellowship. So this word for share derives from the word for fellowship. Sorry, this word for share derives from the word for fellowship. That indicates then to us the kind of of unity-preserving love that is at the heart of this eagerness to share. It's, it's flowing out of the care and concern that we have for the body of Christ and all the believers. 
There, there's, this, there's this corporate aspect to it. The, the idea of placing the fellowship of believers above yourself and serving them in any way you can. We are to view the gift of our money within the church the same way then that we view all other gifts and talents that we have. Right? That makes absolute sense. Coming back again to that, that truth that we're relaying over and over again. It is all a gift from God. It is all a gift from God. And I know you've heard me say that a bunch of times today and last week, but do you really believe that? Do you really believe it's from Him? Are you, are you willing maybe to just kind of mentally adhere to it? Yeah, it's a, I know it's in the Bible, but I really did work hard. I really did work hard to earn it. Even so, who gave you the ability to work hard or the mind to study so that you could excel? Many of you are serving in areas in this church, areas that God has gifted you to serve in. And then a lot of times it's because others pick you out. They see a ministry need. They see you and they see how you've demonstrated that need. We've had the opportunity a lot of times to go to someone with a teaching gift and say, hey, you have a clear teaching gift. You need to serve in that area. Here are some opportunities. And when you're on the other side of that, isn't that nice to hear? Right? That, that someone is, is recognizing that in you. It's, it's, it's being confirmed, the fact that, yes, this is where God has gifted me. It's good that the church sees it also and is finding places for me to use it because that's why I have it. Or maybe we notice, you know, we talk to someone, hey, you're able to, <laughs> you're able to stay in a room with ten preschoolers at once without slipping into madness. God has clearly given you the closest thing to a miraculous gift that hasn't ceased. Have you thought about helping in our children's ministry? We would love to have you. Or if someone came up to you and after church and said, Hey, I heard you singing behind me and God has gifted you with an amazing voice. I think you should use it serving the church on the music team or in choir. It's nice to hear those things, and we're grateful to God for them. And we usually are quick to begin to take steps to serve in those ways. What about if someone were to come up to you and say, you know, I have noticed that God has really blessed you with a lot of money. Have you thought about giving a large amount to the church so that we can start getting on with some of these plans we have? What's your response there? Is it that same joyful recognition of how God has indeed blessed you? Doesn't this show how off we are? Would that quickly, quickly be met with a little bit of distrust and anger? Something slips into your head and you're like, my money. How dare someone try and tell me what to do with my money. Think about that. You don't, you don't hear that in those other situations. It'd be unheard of. It's my voice. How dare someone from my church tell me what to do with my voice. It's my teaching ability. How dare someone tell me what to do with my teaching ability. Can you see it now? 
You see why Paul and Jesus are so concerned with the dangerous desire for riches, how easily it can blind us. What other good gift from God can evoke that kind of selfish response in us? Do you really believe that what God says about riches being a gift from Him is true? Do you really believe it in your heart? This is an area more than most where we need to be saying, I I do believe, help my unbelief. So this response to these four things that we've just talked about in verse 18 will come much more easy to you when you actually believe these truths in your heart. And to help us here, Paul reminds us of what we here see as our fourth point of treasure. Riches and money, everything we can use it on in this life is not real treasure. But it can be used to gain that which is true treasure. When we are taking our riches and joyfully using them in obedience to the instructions that we see in verse 18, and we store up treasure in heaven. Paul is consistent with Christ on this. The idea behind storing up That means that you're literally moving riches from one place to another. You're taking them from here and moving them here. As you take the riches that, that you have here on earth and you use them for God's glory, for His church, for His sheep, it may look like that money goes away forever, but it's really just being moved into a far more secure location. This short life, the other thing, the fact that we have this temporary life should, should get to us about, this short life is the only time that we have to cash in this world's riches for eternal riches. It's all we have. Just like the only time you have to pay into a retirement fund is while you are still employed. Once you're done, you can't go back and put more into it. What you have is what you have. Pay into that fund, don't you? Because you trust that it is going to be better for you in the end. Do we really trust the the American financial enterprise more than we do God and His Word? Because He tells us what we put in here, what we put into Him in His church, what we put into the riches of good works, he tells us that what we put in there builds a foundation for us for the future. The word foundation here is is meant to to be in contrast with the term uncertainty of riches that he mentioned earlier. In contrast to that, this is something certain, something strong, something that cannot be destroyed. But finally... Paul says that the reason why we are to do all of this is so that we can take hold of that which is truly life. 
That strong phrase, again, to take hold of or to seize or to grasp. Again, that's, that's in contradiction to the, the idea of uncertainty of riches and the false hope that they promise. This is something that can be taken hold of. This implies that the, the, that the life that is promised by worldly riches, that life that looks so awesome sometimes, so luxurious, that life that we sometimes catch ourselves daydreaming about, or maybe, in the eyes of others, living. That life that we're longing for, that is not truly life. More than that, even the lives we live, if they are lived with the love of riches in our hearts, whether we have them or not, that is not truly life. Understanding who God is, what He has done for us in Christ. He saved us from our sin, granted us, given us the righteousness of Christ, adopted us as sons and daughters, allowing us now to live for Him in this life, being able to do things with our life that are actually meaningful, things that are actually of eternal significance rather than being confined to live a life that only stacks up the wrath of God upon ourselves. Knowing that not only did God save us, but He graciously pours out His gifts upon us so that we might have the joy and the pleasure of using those gifts in His service. We are those who have been entrusted with riches. When we walk around with that mindset, We're poor because we're comparing ourselves to our standard of rich that we see in someone else. It's a subtle way of getting off the hook for not applying this passage that is meant for each of us. When When we see what's promised for us, why would we want to get off that hook? Because of Paul's warning about just how dangerous the desire for money is, we need to take extra care. Extra care to make every effort to live according to these principles. Let us be those marked by good works, riches of good works, generosity, and a desire to share with our eyes so fixed on Christ and His promises that it is impossible for money to cling to us. Let us be those people. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the way it confronts us. How how much we desperately need it to show us things that we are so easily blinded to. Lord, I pray that you would take these truths from this passage, that you would work them into our hearts, that we would be wise stewards of all of the resources that you have entrusted us with. And we would not forget our mission. That we would not forget why we are here. And we would not, would, would not be able to look past 
the amazing sacrifice of Christ that calls us to be a people together, that allows us to be a people who, who get to have the presence of God with us, in us. May the generosity that we show be equal to that recognition. In Jesus' name, amen.